Chapter 23 of A Daughter of the Sioux. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Jim Fish on the Texas Frontier. A Daughter of the Sioux by General Charles King. Chapter 23 A Soldier Entangled. December and bitter cold, the river frozen stiff, the prairie sheeted in unbroken snow, great log fires roaring in every open fireplace, great throngs of soldiery about the red-hot barrack stoves, for all the columns were again in winter columns, and Flint's two companies had got the route for home. They were to march on the morrow, escorting as far as Laramie the intractable of Stabber's band. Some few of the Indians to go in irons, among them Ralph Moreau, or Eagle Wing, now a notorious character. The general was there at Frayne with old Black Bill, erstwhile chief inspector of the department, once a subaltern in days long gone by when Laramie was Ultima Thule of the Plains Forts. The general had heard Flint's halting explanation of his laxity in Moreau's case, saying, almost as little in reply as his old friend Grant when interviewed by those of whom he disapproved. Black Bill it was who waxed explosive when once he opened on the major and showed that amazed New Englander something of the contents of Moreau's Indian kit, including the now famous hunting pouch, all found with Stabber's village. A precious scoundrel, as it turned out, was this same Moreau, with more sins to answer for than many a convicted jailbird, and with not one follower left to do him reverence except, perhaps, that lonely girl, self-secluded at the Hayes. Hay himself, though weak, was beginning to sit up. Dade, Blake, and Ray were all once more housed in garrison. Truscott and Billings, with their hardy troopers, had taken temporary station at the post until the general had decided upon the disposition of the array of surrendered Indians, nearly three hundred in number, now confined under strong guard in the quartermaster's corral at the flats, with six head devils, including Eagle Wing, in the garrison prison. All officers, with two exceptions, were again for duty at Frayne. Webb laid by the hills at Beecher, his feet severely frozen, and Beverly Phil, who recalled from a brief and solemn visit to a far southern home, had reached the post at nightfall of the tent. There had hardly been allowed him time to uplift a single prayer, to receive a word of consolation from the lips of friends and kindred who loved the honored father, born to his last resting place. Come as soon as possible, read the message wired him by Ray, and though the campaign was over, it was evident that something was amiss, and, with all his sorrow fresh upon him, the lad, sore in body and soul, had hastened to obey. And it was Ray who received and welcomed him, and took him straightway to his own cozy quarters, that Mrs. Ray, and then the Blakes, might add their sympathetic and cordial greeting, ere it came to telling why it was that these, his friends despite that trouble that could not be talked of, were now so earnest in their sympathy, before telling him that his good name had become involved, that there were allegations concerning him which the chief had ordered pigeonholed, until he should come to face them. A pity it is that Bill Hay could not have been there too, but his fever had left him far too weak to leave his room. Only Ray and Blake were present, 
and it was an interview not soon, if ever, to be forgotten. I'm no hand at breaking things gently, Phil, said Ray, when finally the three were closeted together in the captain's den. It used to worry Webb that you were seen so often riding with Miss, Miss Flower up to Stabber's village, and in the light of what has since happened, you will admit that he had reasons. Hear me, though, he continued, as Phil, sitting bolt upright in his easy chair, essayed to speak. Neither Captain Blake nor I believe one word to your dishonor in the matter, but it looks as though you had been made a tool of, and you are by no means the first man. It was to see this fellow Moreau, Eagle Wing, whom you recognized as the Elk. She was there so frequently, was it not? Into Phil's pale face there came a look of infinite distress. For a moment he hesitated, and little beads began to start out on his forehead. Captain Ray, he finally said, they tell me, I heard it from the driver on the way up from Rock Springs, that Miss Flower is virtually a prisoner, that she has been in league with the Sioux, and yet, until I can see her, can secure my release from a promise, I have to answer you as I answered you before. I cannot say. Blake started impatiently and heaved up from his lounging chair, his long legs taking him in three strides to the frost-covered window at the front. Ray sadly shook his dark, curly head. "'You are to see her, Phil. The general, bless him for a trump, wouldn't listen to a word against you in your absence. But that girl has involved everybody. You, her aunt, who has been devotion itself to her, her uncle, who is almost her slave. She deliberately betrayed him into the hands of the Sioux. In fact, this red robber and villain, Moreau, is the only creature she hasn't tried to work and he abandoned her after she had lied, sneaked, and stolen for him. Captain Ray! The cry came from pallid lips, and the young soldier started to his feet, appalled at such accusation. Every word of it is true, said Ray. She joined him after his wounds. She shared his escape from the village at our approach. She was with him when Blake nabbed them at Bear Cliff. She was going with him from here. What manner of girl was that field for you to be mixed up with? He is her half-brother, protested Phil with kindling eyes. She told me everything, told me of their childhood together, and told you a pack of infernal lies, burst in Blake, no longer able to contain himself. Made you a cat's paw, led you even to taking her by night to see him when she learned the band were to jump for the mountains, used you, by God, as he used her. And like the Indian she is, she'd turn and stab you now if you stood in her way or his. Why, Phil, that brute's her lover, and she's his. It's a lie. You shall not say it, sir, cried Phil, beside himself with wrath and amaze, as he stood quivering from head to foot, still weak from wounds, fever, and distress of mind. But Ray sprang to his side. Hush, Blake. Hush, Phil. Don't speak. What is it, Hogan? and sharply he turned him to the door, never dreaming what had caused the interruption. The general, sir, to see the captain. And there, in the hallway, throwing off his heavy overcoat and arctics, there, with that ever-faithful aid in close attendance, was the chief they loved, dropped in, all unsuspecting, just to say good-bye. I knocked twice, began Hogan, but Ray brushed him aside, for, catching sight of the captain's face, the general was already at the door. Another moment, and he had discovered Field, and with both hands extended, all kindliness and sympathy, 
He stepped at once across the room to greet him. I was so very sorry to hear the news, said he. I knew your father well in the old days. How's your wound? What brought you back so soon? And then there was one instant of awkward silence, and then Ray spoke. That was my doing, General. I believed it best that he should be here to meet you and every allegation at his expense. Mr. Field, I feel sure, does not begin to know them yet, especially as to the money. It was all recovered, said the General. It was found almost intact. So was much of that that they took from Hay. Even if it hadn't been, Hay assumed all responsibility for the loss. With new bewilderment in his face, the young officer, still white and trembling, was gazing, half stupefied, from one to the other. "'What money?' he demanded. "'I never heard—' "'Wait,' said the general, with significant glance at Ray, who was about to speak. "'I am to see them, Mrs. Hay and her niece, at nine o'clock. It's near that now. Webb cannot be with us, but I shall want you, Blake. Say nothing until then. Sit down, Mr. Field, and tell me about that leg. Can you walk from here to Hay's, I wonder?' Then the ladies, Mrs. Ray and her charming next-door neighbor, appeared, and the general adjourned the conference forthwith and went with them to the parlor. "'Say nothing, Lord,' Ray found time to whisper. "'You'll understand it all in twenty minutes.' At nine o'clock the little party was on its way through the sharp and wintry night, the general and Captain Blake side by side ahead, the aide-de-camp and Mr. Phil close following. Dr. Waller, who had been sent for, met them near the office. The sentries at the guardhouse were being changed as the five tramped by along the snapping and protesting boardwalk, and a sturdy little chap, in fur cap and gauntlets, and huge buffalo overcoat, caught sight of them and, facing outward, slapped his carbine down to the carry, the night signal of soldier recognition of superior rank as practiced at that time. "'Tables are turned with a vengeance,' said the general, with his quiet smile. That's little Kennedy, isn't it? I seem to see him everywhere when we're campaigning. Moreau was going to eat his heart out the next time they met, I believe. So he said, grinned Blake, before Windsor's bullet fetched him. Pity it hadn't killed him instead of crippling him. He's a bad lot, sighed the general. Wing won't fly away from Kennedy, I fancy. Not if there's a shot left in his belt, said Blake. And Ray is officer of the day. There'll be no napping on guard this night. At the barred aperture that served for window on the southward front, a dark face peered forth in malignant hate as the speaker strode by. But it shrank back when the sentry once more tossed his carbine to the shoulder and briskly trudged beneath the bars. Six Indians shared that prison room, four of their number destined to exile in the distant east, two years, perhaps, within the casements of a seaboard fort, the last place on earth for a son of the warlike Sioux. They know their fate, I understand, said Blake, as the general moved on again. Oh, yes, their agent and others have been here with Indian Bureau orders, permitting them to see and talk with the prisoners. Their shackles are to be riveted on tonight. Nearly time now, isn't it? A tattoo, sir. The whole guard forms then, and the four are to be moved into the main room for the purpose. I'm glad this is the last of it. Yes, we'll start them with Flynn at dawn in the morning. He'll be more than glad to get away, too. He hasn't been over lucky here, either. A strange domestic, the McGrath having been given warning and removed to Sudsville, showed them into the trader's roomy parlor, the largest and most pretentious at the post. Hay had lavished money on his home and loved it and the woman who had so adorned it. 
She came in almost instantly to greet them, looking piteously into the kindly bearded face of a general, and civilly yet absently welcoming the others. She did not seem to realize that Field, who stood in silence by the side of Captain Blake, had been away. She had no thought, apparently, for anyone but the chief himself, he who held the destinies of her dear ones in the hollow of his hands. His first question was for Fawn Eyes, the little Ogallala maiden whose history he seemed to know. She is well and trying to be content with me, was the reply. She has been helping poor Nanette. She does not seem to understand or realize what is coming to him. Have they ironed him yet? I believe not, said the general, but it has to be done tonight. They start so early in the morning. And you won't let her see him, general. No good can come from it. She declares she will go to him in the morning, if you prohibit it tonight. And the richly jeweled hands of the unhappy woman were clasped almost in supplication. By morning he will be beyond her reach. The escort starts at six. And these gentlemen here, she looked nervously, appealing about her, must they all know? These and the inspector general, he will be here in a moment. But indeed, Mrs. Hay, it is all known, practically, said the general with sympathy and sorrow in his tone. Not all, not all, general. Even I don't know all. She herself has said so. Hush, she's coming. She was there. They had listened for swish of skirts or fall of slender feet upon the stairway, but there had not been a sound. They saw the reason as she halted at the entrance, lifting with one little hand the costly Navajo blanket that hung as a portier. In harmony with the glossy folds of richly dyed wool, she was habited in Indian garb from head to foot. In two black, lustrous braids twisted with feather and quill and ribbon, her wealth of hair hung over her shoulders down the front of her slender form. A robe of dark blue stuff, rich with broidery of colored bead and bright-hued plumage, hung close-clinging, and her feet were shod in soft moccasins, also deftly worked with bead and quill. But it was her face that chained the gaze of all, and that drew from the pallid lips of Lieutenant Field a gasp of mingled consternation and amaze. Without a vestige of color, with black circles under her glittering eyes, with lines of suffering around the rigid mouth, and with that strange, pinched look about the nostrils that tells of anguish, bodily and mental, Nanette stood at the doorway, looking straight at the chief. She had no eyes for lesser lights. All her thought, apparently, was for him, for him whose power it was, in spite of vehement opposition, to deal as he saw fit with the prisoner in his hands. Appeal on part of friends, societies, peace, and Indian associations had failed. The president had referred the matter in its entirety to the general commanding in the field, and the general had decided. One moment she studied his face, then came slowly forward. No hand extended, no sign of salutation, greeting, much less of homage. Ignoring all others present, she addressed herself solely to him. Is it true you have ordered him in irons into Fort Rochambeau, she demanded. It is. Simply because he took part with his people when your soldiers made war on them, she asked, her pale lips quivering. You well know how much else there was, answered the general simply, and I have told you he deserves no pity of yours. Oh, you say he came back here a spy, she broke forth impetuously. It is not so. He never came near the post, nearer than Stabber's village, and there he had a right to be. You say twas he who led them to the warpath, that he planned the robbery here and took the money. 
He never knew they were going till they were gone. He never stole a penny. That money was loaned him honestly and for a purpose, and with the hope and expectation of rich profit thereby. By you, do you mean? asked the general, calmly as before. By me? No. What money had I? He asked it, and it was given him by Lieutenant Field. A gasp that was almost a cry following instantly on this insolent assertion, a sound of stir and start among the officers at whom she had not as yet so much as glanced, now caused the girl to turn one swift, contemptuous look their way, and in that momentary flash her eyes encountered those of the man she had thus accused. Phil stood like one turned suddenly to stone, gazing at her with wild, incredulous eyes, one instant she seems to sway, as though the sight had staggered her, but the rally was instantaneous. Before the general could interpose a word, she plunged on again. He at least had a heart and conscience. He knew how wrongfully Moreau had been accused. That money was actually needed to establish his claim. It would all have been repaid if your soldiers had not forced this wicked war, and, and now in her vehemence her eyes were flashing, her hand uplifted, when all of a sudden the portier was raised the second time, and there at the doorway stood the former Inspector General, Black Bill. At sight of him the mad flow of words met sudden stop. Down, slowly down, came the clenched, uplifted hand. Her eyes, glaring as were fields a moment agone, were fixed in awful fascination on the grizzled face. Then actually she recalled as the veteran officer stepped quietly forward into the room. And what, said he, with placid interest, I haven't heard you rave in many a moon, Nanette. You are your mother over again, without your mother's excuse for fury. But a wondrous silence had fallen on the group. The girl had turned rigid. For an instant not a move was made, and, in the hush of all but throbbing hearts, the sound of the trumpets pealing forth the last notes of tattoo came softly through the outer night. Then sudden, close at hand, yet muffled by double door and windows, came other sounds, sounds of rush and scurry, excited voices, cries of halt, halt, the ring of a carbine, a yell of warning, another shot, and Blake and the aide-de-camp sprang through the hallway to the storm door without. Mrs. Hay, shuddering with dread, ran to the door of her husband's chamber beyond the dining room. She was gone but a moment. When she returned, the little Ogallala maid, trembling and wild-eyed, had come running down from aloft. The general had followed into the lighted hallway. They were all crowding there by this time, and the voice of Captain Ray, with just a tremor of excitement about it, was heard at the storm door on the porch, in explanation to the chief. Moreau, sir, broke guard and stabbed Kennedy. The second shot dropped him. He wants fawn-eyes his sister. A scream of agony ran through the hall, shrill and piercing. Then the wild cry followed. You shall not hold me. Let me go to him, I say. I am his wife. End of chapter 23 Recorded by Jim Fish on the Texas Frontier